Welcome once again to the Daily in Christ podcast. I'm Mark Van Oos, and we have been in an incredible study of the book of Hebrews. The study is called Hebrews, the Glory of the New Covenant. And I'll tell you what, if you want to learn about the New Covenant, the book of Hebrews is definitely the place to dig in. Well, last time in this podcast, we looked at chapter one, and I want to take a moment and just review some of the key points that we saw there in uh, Hebrews chapter one. We saw at the very beginning that God is a speaking God, and that is an encouraging thing. That means that God is relational and that God is speaking today through his son. In other words, God is taking a very personal approach in the speaking to us. And as Hebrews 1 goes on, it talks about the fact that Jesus is the expression of God. It's this idea of something coming from the mind and the heart of the Father and being directly expressed by means of the Son himself. I did a tie over to John chapter 1, where it says uh, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word for the word word, (laughs) too many words there. The Greek word for word is logos, which means the expression of a thought. It says that Jesus is the radiance of the Father. And again, this idea of something going forth. Well, then we went through verses 4 through 14 of Hebrews 1 and saw how the so much better begins. And in this case, it's the so much better that Jesus is far better than the angels because he is the Son. And in verses 8 through 12, we see some of the clearest declarations of Christ's divinity. The Lord Jesus Christ is God together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And then uh, we went on and we saw so many individual points about the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll be getting back into that just a little bit as we get into Hebrews chapter 2. And then we ended by saying, someone might wonder, well, what's the point of all this? Is it just a lot of lofty speech that has no bearing on me in my everyday life? And we made the point that we are not the center of the universe. God is, and how the fallen mind always defaults to me being the center. Everything is referenced off me, but that's not reality. God himself is the center. God himself is God, and God himself is the source. We talked about the importance of faith in God because he is the center. He is the object of our faith. The Bible says in four key places that the just shall live by faith. And faith, by definition, is looking beyond myself to someone else. In this case, biblical faith means faith in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well, today we're ready to move into chapter 2 of Hebrews. And as I like to do right at the very beginning, let's approach the Word of God, uh, asking the Holy Spirit of God to bring an understanding, to bring revelation, to illuminate the scriptures so that we can see. Father, we come in the majestic name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that you are Almighty God. Thank you, Lord, that you are the source of everything. And Father, as we approach your holy word in Hebrews chapter 2, Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, Shine your light on the scripture. Lord, speak to us. 
Help us to see things that we did not see before. And above all, Lord, I pray that we would see and understand Jesus so that we, upon this understanding, would go to him in faith. Thank you, Lord, for your wonderful word. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who enables us to understand, to see beyond ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's take some time right now and just read through Hebrews chapter 2. I am reading from the New King James Version of the Holy Bible. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness with both signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels." You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the work of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But we do not see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. All right, there it is, Hebrews chapter 2. And let's just walk through this magnificent chapter and see what the Lord has for us. First of all, in verse 1, it says this, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. 
You know the old saying, if it says therefore, then you need to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And what is the therefore, therefore? Well, it is a very important one that comes right out of Hebrews chapter 1. Remember what was shared there in the second half of Hebrews chapter 1? And really throughout Hebrews chapter 1, the superiority of Jesus, that God has spoken through Jesus, that he is the word, that Jesus is the heir of all things. He made the worlds. He is the brightness, the outraying of God's glory, the express image of God the Father's person. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his mighty power. He purged our sins. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is so much better than the angels. He is the Son, the only begotten of the Father. Jesus' throne lasts forever. He rules with righteousness. He is seated waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. That comes right out of uh, Hebrews chapter 1, just the different bullet points uh, about the Lord that is brought out. And that's why it says, therefore, based upon that, based upon the superiority of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done, it says we need to pay attention. We need to give the more earnest heed. And then it talks about drifting away. You know, uh, the idea of drift is a very subtle kind of thing, isn't it? Uh, Recently in the news, uh, there was a story about a few young boys, some teenage boys, and I believe they were from the New Zealand area, and they were out in a very small boat, and somehow they got caught in the current that pulled them out to sea. There's a strong drift that drifts them out to sea. You know, while they were in what was safe harbor, they were okay, but they hit a place where there was a drift, and they moved away. Another picture of this, when I was a boy, me and my dad would go fishing, and we'd be sitting in the little boat, and I would be, you know, staring at that bobber that was out there on the water, waiting for that bobber to move up and down, meaning a fish was nibbling, and hopefully that thing would go completely under the water. You know, it always amazed me. Uh, I'd be staring at that bobber, not paying a lot of attention, but when I would look up at the shoreline, I would notice that we had drifted hundreds of feet. It was always amazing. And there is something very subtle about a drift. And it is something very dangerous as well. Like in that situation of those uh, teenage boys who were um, caught out in the current and then uh, out in the open sea. Thank God they were found alive and they're okay now. We have to be very careful. It is quite possible for us to kind of, you know, put it in neutral and just drift away. There is a danger of that. Now, this is uh, something that is one of the highlights of the book of Hebrews, is that there are several admonitions and warnings, as I mentioned in the first installment of this series in our introduction. And again, let me say that we are not to be afraid about the admonitions and warnings, but rather we need to understand that uh, we need to pay attention. That's the word to the Christian. 
Wake up. Pay attention. Uh, Have an active faith. Don't be passe about things. Don't cave in. Don't be blasé. We'll have more on that coming up in just a little bit. You see, Hebrews and the New Covenant develops our ground of confidence in Christ. It's important that we be diligent to learn about him, to learn about what he has done, to understand the finished work of Jesus Christ, to understand the new covenant. And I have to commend you because you are trying to do that. You wouldn't have downloaded this podcast if you really didn't care about your salvation, if you really didn't care about these uh, great things from the Lord. It's important for us to grab a hold of the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. Again, Hebrews develops the ground, and then upon that basis, we can move forward in confidence and enter in. Now to verse 2. It says this, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Now that is referring to the law covenant which was instituted through the agency of angels. So in that case, it was a very binding agreement, and it stipulated clearly that every transgression and disobedience would get what it deserves. It says this, continuing, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us By those who heard him. What a very important word, and it continues in this theme we just mentioned a a few moments ago that uh, we can't be passive in this thing. We have to pay attention, we need to pay the more earnest heed. And if we had to pay heed under the old, how much more the new? And a very important question is raised here in verse 3. It says, How shall we escape? And I want to underline that word, how. In other words, what other way could there possibly be of escape? Nothing else could possibly work. How shall we escape if we neglect? And again, this is somewhat related to the idea of drifting. You know, a person can can neglect something. They're not directly opposed to it. They're not trying to thwart whatever it is. Rather, if something falls to neglect, what's happening is they're just sort of letting it fall by the wayside. They're kind of letting it go. You know, it's like everything in life. If you don't take care of it, it's going to start falling apart. Now, I'm not saying that our salvation falls apart, but I will say this. There is a danger that we run into through the problem of neglect and not paying attention not really making an effort to to say, okay, Lord, teach me, show me about Jesus, show me about what he has done for me, help me to understand this salvation. And right here in verse 3, it says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This isn't just a little salvation. This isn't just a sort of, oh, you sort of squeak by salvation. No, this is a great salvation. It is God-sized. It is as effective as God himself is. It is great, and it is a great salvation. You know, a lot of Christians have what I call a very myopic 
view of salvation. You know what myopia is? It's nearsightedness. I actually have myopia, and it means that unless I have a correction to my eyes with lens, I can see things close, but I can't see things far away. Well, a myopic salvation sort of sees some things, but misses the big picture. Biblical salvation is a very full and rich term. In fact, the Greek word for salvation is soteria. And Vine's expository uh, dictionary defines it in this context as deliverance, preservation, salvation. That's what this salvation is. Now, what is deliverance but a rescue out of something? What is preservation? It's being kept from corruption. We need that in this very ungodly, corrupt generation. And salvation is being saved from the just wrath of God. Now, these verses are not trying to get us scared. What it's trying to do is point our active attention to this great salvation. It's not bad news. This is good news. You see, we do have a great salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's complete. It takes care of all that we could ever need. So how in the world can we live without it? How else can we live free? How else can we draw near to God? You see, there is a definite possibility of neglect. We can let let it fall by the wayside and not really enjoy the full benefits of this great salvation in our now experience. And really, the possibility of neglect can happen both for the sinner, the person without Christ, unsaved, as well as the saint, that is the person by God's grace in Christ and saved. Now, the danger of neglect for the sinner who has a, well, easy come, easy go. You know, I heard a a guy actually make the statement, um, someone was encouraging him to pay attention to the salvation. He was like, well, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, and the Christian said, but wait a minute, you know, what about the next life? And he said, oh, I guess it's all going to work out. That, that's, that's an attitude of neglect. Oh, my goodness, that's dangerous. You see, for the sinner, the one not in Christ and unsaved, the danger of neglect is great. They remain in their sins, and they will face irrevocably the wrath of God. And so the needed response of the sinner to such a great salvation is repent of your own way and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And for the saint, for the one in Christ, the Christian, you see, the problem of neglect is the problem of enjoying the full benefits of our present salvation. You see, our righteous standing with God is not in question. All of Hebrews testifies that that righteous standing depends not upon your work, but upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. But where we can find deprivation in our Christian walk by neglecting such a great salvation is that we are deprived of the present benefits of this great salvation right now in our daily experience. And I have to say, uh, unfortunately, this is the problem of most Christians. 
You know, too many Christians don't even know about this great, full, complete, total salvation. As I mentioned, most Christians suffer from a myopia, a salvation myopia. They only see enough to get you forgiven and get you to heaven. Oh my goodness, this salvation is so much bigger. Forgiveness takes care of your past. Thank God for forgiveness. And heaven is our future. But I don't know about you. I don't live in my past. I don't live in the future. I live right now. I need a present salvation. I need that salvation right now. And it's tragic that so many Christians don't know about this great and full and complete total salvation. Or maybe you can have a situation where Christians do know about it, but they don't experience the benefits of this salvation because, again, it's an attitude of um, whatever. It's an attitude of neglect. It's getting too caught up with the things of this world instead of really taking the time to focus in on Jesus. Let me say this, and I'm speaking to Christians here. We, myself included, face a real danger of passivity in this life, even caving in. You know, where we get that depressed or blasé attitude. See, the pressure of this world can easily crowd out hearing the voice of God and sensing his presence. I know because I struggle with it too. And unfortunately, we can let the world's wisdom in. Hear me, Christian, please. What a great danger we have when we entertain the thinking of godless wisdom. It factors God out. And here's the thing. We can, can kind of be a bit like Israel of old, you know, in the days of Moses where they stayed in the desert, but they didn't enter in to the promised land. They, they prefer to stay in the safety zone of the desert rather than to trust God and his rich provision in a much better place than a desert. Too many Christians are wandering around and around and around and around unnecessarily. You see, what God is calling us to is deliberately walking in the confidence of the Lord. We need to step out by faith. The Bible says, and I mentioned this last time, in four key places, the just shall live by faith. Say that with me. The just shall live by faith. Not by sight, but by faith. That's in Hebrews 2, 4. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and in this book, the book of Hebrews 10.38. The world forever is going to say, walk by your senses, walk by sight, walk by, oh, walking by faith is foolish. But see, the, the world is in a condition of spiritual death. They're apart from God. No wonder they all, they, all they have is sight, all they have is sense knowledge. In the context of Hebrews, the Jewish Christians, those who were really saved, were under enormous pressure to cave in to the Judaizers and the unsaved Jews. This, uh, this, this theme keeps coming up a lot in Hebrews. They are under severe pressure. They are even under persecution to give up this Jesus, to give up this silly Christianity. Get yourself back into the, to the system that you're supposed to be in. I think a lot of us can feel that kind of pressure too. But see, this epistle of Hebrews, this this book is meant to bolster 
our confidence in a full salvation that we have through the perfect finished work of Jesus. It spoke to those Jews back then, those Jewish Christians, and my friend, it speaks to us today. We need that constant adamant encouragement about this full salvation. And it is also meant to serve as a warning about several dangers that are along the way. Uh, That's what Hebrews does. And right now, there's a warning about the danger of neglect. Please understand that uh, if uh, if you are saved by the grace of God, in other words, if you are in Christ, you've received the gift of salvation, that means that you, like I, already have, through Jesus Christ and his righteousness, you see, God has given to us a gift that is full, great, incredible, amazing, effective, powerful, God-glorifying salvation. You've got it. It's ours right now. So grab a hold of it with joy and confidence. Get up out of your seats and move in faith with confidence toward the Lord. You see, the heart of the writer of Hebrews is this, to the sinner, Don't let such a great salvation pass you by. Jesus did it all for you, sinner. Look to him and believe. The consequences of failing to do so are catastrophic. Judgment, condemnation, and death. And then the heart of the writer of Hebrews to the saint is this. I don't want you to miss out on the full now benefit of this great salvation. The second part of uh, Hebrews chapter 3, well, let me read the beginning of 3, and then we'll focus on that second part. 3 says again, how shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Verse 4, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. You see, God himself has given the witness, and, and God is not a liar. When he says that something is true, dear friend, it is true. And it has been proven. God has demonstrated both with his signs and wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. We don't have, you know, a God who is speaking these truths sort of in a theoretical, uh, professorial sort of way. This is an engaged God who has proven it by what he does and what he has supernaturally done. All right, we're going to look at verses uh, 5 through 9, and uh, we're going to see here that the Lord Jesus, and again, our focus is being lifted away from ourselves, away from our performance, and being lifted up to Jesus. Oh, that's good. (laughs) And we're going to learn about how Jesus, as the Son, was made lower than the angels so that he might taste death for everyone. So let's read verses 5 through 9. Speaking of God, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? 
You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the work of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now look at verse 5. It says that uh, he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection, to angels. By implication, the world to come is subject to Jesus, not to angels. And this is yet another declaration of Jesus' superiority in that he is ranked above the angels and that the world to come is subject to him as a ruler. In verses 6 through 8, it says that Jesus as a man, all right, you have Jesus as the eternal Son of God, according to his divinity, way beyond the angels. He's the ruler of the coming age. But Jesus, in humiliating himself, humbling himself, becoming as a man, the Son of Man, is ranked below the angels like man is. It says in verse 6, But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the Son of Man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the work of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Now this is speaking of man and man's position in being a little lower than the angels. This refers to the human race. This refers to mankind. And really, mankind's original condition was, again, a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. How was that? Well, it says over in Genesis chapter 1 that man was made in the likeness and image of God. And God set man over the works of God's hands in the creation, gave him dominion. All things in subjection under his feet, verse 8. But it's qualified in verse the second part of verse 8. It says, but we do not see all things uh, under him, put under him, mankind. There's the dilemma. This is a quote, by the way, verse 6 of uh, Psalm 8, verses 5 through 7. Now, over here in verse 9 of Hebrews 2, it says this, but we see Jesus. All that is so important. We see Jesus. Again, God is, if you will, taking us by the chin, lifting us up from looking down at ourselves. Come on, look up. Look to Jesus. But we see Jesus made as a man lower than the angels. We see him, uh, again, in his humanity, lower, made lower than the angels. And again, he's far higher than the angels as the Son of Man, I'm sorry, as the Son of God in his divinity. Well, why did Jesus humble himself like that? Why did one who is God clothe himself with humanity? The second part of verse 9 is key. It says this, that he, Jesus, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now, Jesus in his divinity is completely indestructible. 
God cannot die. He cannot be killed. He cannot be terminated. But Jesus had to have humanity. He had to have flesh and blood in order to experience death. Now, one other thing about this in the second part of verse 9, it says that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. You see that? The reason why God has done this is it is his grace. Ephesians 2, 4 says this, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And, and uh, Ephesians 2, 4 comes after the first three verses of Ephesians that talks about all that was wrong with us. You know, following the course of the air, following Satan, we were by nature objects of wrath. Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. There's that motivation of love. And God's grace, by definition, is his love in action. It's God loving you, blessing you, and accepting you, not because you deserve it, but because he is good. In fact, we deserve just the opposite. And yet that's why God loves us. God's grace is so rich and it's so abundant. Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone. Now, Jameson Fawcett Brown, a great commentary on the scriptures written a long time ago, uh, talks about this idea of tasting death. What does that mean? They say it implies Jesus' personal experiential undergoing of death, death of the body and death spiritually of the soul in his being forsaken of the Father. Wow. But would you note that that death had no claim on him. Jesus conquered death, didn't he? This reminds me of what is in Philippians chapter 2. And uh, this is uh, very powerful. I'm going to take a moment here and uh, go to it. Philippians chapter 2, and it speaks of this humbling of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It says in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2, who being in the form of God did not consider consider it robbery to be equal with God. So Jesus is forever co-eternal, co-equal with the Father, but made himself, Jesus did that, made himself of no reputation. Now the idea there of the in the original Greek is he made himself nothing. He made himself a zero. By comparison, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. How obedient was Jesus, it says, to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Jesus fulfilled all in that humility, in that suffering, in that obedience, even to the point of death. And God the Father's response is to exalt him and give him the name which is above every name, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, that's in uh, Philippians chapter 2. And there is a remarkable parallel here. Again, the focus and the center is Jesus. 
It's all about him. And then it says in that second part of verse 9, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, second part. Got it? For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus faced the suffering of death. And as a result of that, as we just read in Philippians chapter 2, he is now crowned with glory and honor. What is the the condition and place of Jesus now? Glory and honor and forevermore. What did he face when he was on this earth? Humiliation. He humbled himself. My goodness, going from the lofty heights of the glories of heaven and being in the immediate presence of the Father and coming down, making himself as nothing. My goodness, what a great humility and humbling he had. Jesus was obedient even to the point of death and the cross results in Jesus being rightfully crowned with glory and honor. It says that Jesus, by the grace of God, you see, he did this so that we, by the grace of God, would not experience that ultimate death and damnation and condemnation and wrath. He tasted death for everyone. It's so easy for us to look at everyone and kind of think and not see ourselves in the word everyone. But dear friend, that means Jesus did it for you and Jesus did it for me. Jesus experienced that death in its full measure. He drank that cup all the way down to its dregs. But he experienced it only for a moment. It was just a taste. But death, praise God, has no hold on him anymore. In the Revelation, he appears before John the Revelator, and he says, I am alive forevermore. That's in Revelation 1.18. Well, I think I'm going to pause for now in this episode, this podcast of uh, Hebrews, the glory of the new covenant. And, uh, We're going to take it up from there, starting in verse 10. There's a lot of really rich stuff that we have. But uh, just for today, let's close it up and let's do so with prayer. Father, again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for such a great salvation. Thank you, Father, for such a great Savior. Thank you, Lord, for your infinite love of us a love that is so amazing, a love that gives and gives and gives that you gave your only begotten Son. And Jesus, in humbling himself, becoming as nothing, as a servant, as a nobody, Father, we're so glad that he did it all right. He obeyed you every moment from the heart and was obedient even to death the most awful kind of death, the death of shame, the death of agony, the death of false accusation, the death of punishment, the death of torture. Father, I thank you so much that Jesus took it all and he did it for me and he did it for my listening friend. And Father, I want to take a moment right now and to pray for my listening friend. Father, if this person does not know Jesus, has not experienced the gift of salvation, oh God, I pray that you will just open up before their view 
Jesus. May they see what a wonderful Savior he is for them. And Lord, may they turn from their own ways, turn around and believe fully in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive this great gift. Father, if this listening friend who is with us today is a Christian, is saved, has received this gift of salvation and is born again, Lord, may they see their salvation in a fresh, new, complete way. Lord, we need that every day. We need to see what great love has been demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, help us to live in and enjoy the full dimensions of this great salvation in our present daily experience. Father, may we not have a blasé attitude. May we not neglect this. Father, may we, by your grace, give the more earnest heed to Jesus and to this great salvation. Father, may we not drift away. Thank you, Lord, that you hold us, that you carry us, that you are so faithful. Thank you, Lord. Oh, thank you for Jesus. And thank you for this time in your word. Lord, may you, by your spirit, now take this word, plant it deep in our hearts, and continue to reveal your Son to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.